During the month of May, CDSW is running a listener survey to better understand how we can serve you, our listeners. Visit cdsw.com survey to have your say and be entered to win one of two Sled Island Discovery Passes. This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. We're obviously not going to stop global warming. It is too late for that. It's not too late, or so the best science tells us, to keep it from getting worse than it has to get. I think that's the recognition in a way that the youngest parts of the climate movement have really understood. Because look, you and I are going to be dead before the absolute worst of this kicks in. But if you're 12 right now, or 14, or 18, or something, it's going to be right at the moment when you should be in the prime of your life. They understand at some gut level the unfairness of it, and boy, it's good to see them calling people out on it. That's Bill McKibben, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Bill McKibben on Planet in Peril. We've all seen the images of huge icebergs breaking off the Antarctic ice sheets into the ocean. It's not just polar bears and penguins who are in danger of losing their habitat. Our pale blue dot in the universe, as Carl Sagan described Earth, is in peril. The top scientists of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change say we have only until 2030 to avoid catastrophic environmental breakdown. Young people see their future fraught with risk, and they're stepping up and speaking out. 16-year-old Greta Thunberg of Sweden began a school strike protesting the lack of urgency in addressing climate chaos. Her action caught on and spread all over the world. New groups of climate activists, such as 350.org, Extinction Rebellion, and the Sunrise Movement, have arisen. They are demanding radical change in business as usual. Our guest today is Bill McKibben. He's a renowned eco-activist and is the Schumann Distinguished Scholar in Environmental Studies at Middlebury College. He's the winner of the Gandhi Prize and the Right Livelihood Award. He's the author of The End of Nature, Earth, and Falter, and he's co-founder of 350.org. I talked with him in the studios of KGNU in Boulder, Colorado, on April 24th, 2019. Well, welcome to the program, Bill McKibben. Um, you know the famous opening of A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It seems that uh, foolishness in this current epoch uh, seems to be on an upsurge. But I'm going to take you to another little direction, and that is A Tale of Two Jameses. James Black a senior scientist at Exxon, and James Hansen, the premier climatologist. You talk about both of them in Falter, your new book. Well, these two scientists were doing their work, their crucial work at the same time in the 1980s. It was really the 1980s, David, when we finally had the supercomputing power to be able to really do realistic modeling of the climate. We guessed since about the 1950s that there were greenhouse gases gathering in the atmosphere. We knew that from the instruments up on Mauna Loa. But knowing exactly what it meant and how soon it would cause trouble was difficult to ascertain. Come the 1980s, Exxon is the biggest, richest company in the world, number one. Uh, and their product is carbon, and they have good scientists, great scientists. So they set them to work trying to understand this problem. And the scientists do a good job. They tell their executives uh, by 1982 or 1983 how much it's going to warm and how fast. And being rational 
business-minded people, their executives believe them. Exxon, for instance, begins building all its drilling rigs to compensate for the rise in sea level that it knows is coming. In the 1980s, Jim Hansen at NASA, working from an office at 110th and Broadway on the Upper West Side of New York, uh, directly above the soup restaurant that Seinfeld made famous in his sitcom, uh, has the world's biggest, most powerful model of the climate, and he has the best temperature data and things coming in from around the world. And by 1988, he's reached the same conclusions that the Exxon scientists had reached. He tells Congress in June of 1988 that the greenhouse effect, as we called it then, was here, that the planet was indeed warming and that it was going to be a very serious crisis. So this is where these stories then diverge. Exxon could have, the next day, come out and said, you know what, our scientists are telling us the same thing that Mr. Hansen is telling you. And had that happened, it would have marked a kind of turning point in history. No one would have said, oh, Exxon's just being a bunch of climate alarmists, pay them no attention. We would have begun to take the steps that we could have taken then, relatively modest steps, that would have put us on a different trajectory. We wouldn't have solved climate change by this point, but we'd be on the way. Instead, Exxon took the and everybody else in the fossil fuel industry, the diametrically opposite course. They began spending lots of money to build the architecture of deceit and denial and disinformation that kept us, for the next 30 years, locked in an utterly sterile debate about whether or not global warming was real. A debate that, remember, both sides knew the answer to from the get-go. It's just one of them was willing to lie. And that lie turned out to be the most consequential lie in human history. It's the thing that's cost us what may turn out to have been the three crucial decades. It's a um, tragic story, that, of a moment lost and lost to a corporate greed and also to a kind of ideological conviction that ran very strong, still runs very strong in those circles, that markets can do no wrong, that all problems are solved by laissez-faire capitalism, uh, you know, Ayn Rand at work. And this is, turns out, clearly not to be true. Now the Arctic is, half the summer sea ice in the Arctic is melted. Now the oceans are 30% more acidic than they were before. We've run market capitalism through a test, and it hasn't done very well. And coincidentally, perhaps, or fortuitously, the very next year after Hansen's testimony, you came out with The End of Nature. What prompted you to write that book? This was the first book about climate change for a non-scientific audience, and I, you know, truthfully, it had been in some ways prompted by an experience a few years earlier. I was in my mid-20s in those days, 27, when I wrote The End of Nature. And I'd right out of college, I'd gone to work at The New Yorker. And the first long piece, I wrote a lot of uh, talk-of-the-town stories anonymously, but the first long piece I wrote for William Shawn, then the editor of the magazine, was a, a, a piece about where everything in my apartment came from. I followed every pipe and, you know, I was up in the Arctic looking at the hydro dams where Con Ed was getting power and out in the Grand Canyon looking at their uranium mines and, you know, on and on and on. And by the end of it, I'd come away with a much stronger sense than I'd had before of the physicalness of the world. That sounds like a strange thing to say, but I was a good suburban American. Uh, you know, the suburbs are designed to make you to map. I mean, you never know. You, know. you don't have an idea where the rivers are or what happens to I mean, the suburbs are designed to kind of disguise that. And so with that new sense of the physicalness of the world, the, the kind of contingency of its physical arrangements, I started reading the early climate science, and I think I was more struck than I would otherwise have been by its import, by the 
idea that we shouldn't take for granted physical stability. We should be very worried about changes like this. Um, this was a hard question for people to grapple with, I think because it just seemed so overwhelming. Easier to look away <laughs> than to stare hard at it. Perhaps the, the language has something to do with people looking away. When you hear over and over again words like unprecedented, record-breaking, irreparable, the clock is ticking, time is running out, tipping point, and on and on, it, it creates a kind of num psychic numbness. Right, which is one of the reasons why you have to work hard to break through that if you're a writer or, or really an activist, since activism in a way is just a different form of storytelling. You have to work hard to break through that with things that people can really feel. Now, it's gotten easier in the last 10 or 15 years because now what was once a kind of abstract threat is daily reality for hundreds of millions of people. And the scenes are so shocking that everyone, I mean, look, last fall in California, which has always been our you know, cultural ideal of the the golden heaven that awaits us someday, you know. So a city literally called paradise literally turned into hell inside half an hour. Once you saw pictures of people burned to death in their cars trying to flee down a two-lane road from the worst firestorm in American history, you had, you couldn't unsee those images, you know. Do you know the um, German resistance fighter Martin Niemöller? Mm. He created a famous poem, First They Came mm. For. Well, I did a little version of that. You know, first they came for the Pacific Islanders, and I wasn't a Pacific Islander, so I didn't say anything. Then that was followed by the Bangladeshis, mm -hmm. and I wasn't a Bangladeshi. And pretty soon, you know, the whole world is, has been enveloped by rising water. So that's why a little more than a decade ago when I sort of made a fairly pronounced turn from writing to activism, one of the things we wanted to do when we started 350.org was organize globally from the get-go. Not an easy thing to do. I mean, that's one of the reasons it's called 350.org. Not only is it the most important number in the world, the amount of carbon and parts per million that scientists say would be the safe upper limit, but we wanted to be able to communicate around the world and Arabic numerals work better than English words. From the beginning, I mean, our first day of action, we organized 5,200 demonstrations in 181 countries. CNN called it the most widespread day of political activity in the planet's history. Global, they don't call it global warming for nothing. It's the, the, the thing is, though, most of the people who are fighting the hardest are in places that didn't cause the problem. And that moves me every single day. If they can get up in Bangladesh and Fiji and wherever and join in this effort, then surely we can, who contributed more carbon to the atmosphere than any nation in history. There's a documentary called Merchants of Doubt about the... Naomi Oreskes' book, yes. Uh, here's a full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal from uh, an organization called the Competitive Enterprise Institute, which uh, I learned uh, later has ties to tobacco disinformation campaigns and is partly funded by the Koch brothers. And uh, they take the host of Meet the Press, Chuck Todd, to task because he devoted an entire show to promoting the views of climate change alarmists. Uh, he says the science is settled even if political opinion is not. And uh, Todd is then denounced, <laughs> contrary to Chuck Todd and the alarmists, there is real debate among scientists. Uh, really? So this is, well, of course not. I mean, this is the Koch brothers throwing a hissy fit because for the first time in 30 years, the mainstream media, you know, TV broadcast network actually did devote serious time on its Sunday morning shows to talking about climate change. I mean, there have been whole years that had gone by when, you know, the entire network news budget devoted to climate change has been four minutes, eight minutes, 33 minutes, something like that in the course of a year. They're beginning to do a little better now, and the fossil fuel industry 
after 30 years of successful propaganda efforts, won't tolerate even the tiniest crack. So, yeah, full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal, and you can bet that their ad buyers, too, from the fossil fuel industry are reminding the networks uh, uh, precisely how much they pay in every year. Um, there's no – I mean, the science has been – clear i mean since since the last moment when anyone could credibly say that there was really scientific debate about the basic outlines of this problem was about 1995 when the intergovernmental panel on climate change issued its second report its first really big report and and said human beings are raising the temperature of the earth i mean we're sitting here in boulder today you know amidst the greatest conglomeration of climate scientists in the world and i promise you you could walk the corridors of uh, uh of the national labs that are here uh showing them this ad without finding a single climate scientist who would join in the denunciation of chuck todd but still in reports about say hurricane maria in puerto rico or harvey in houston or the firestorms in northern california the wildfires they failed to mention the term uh, climate change incidentally a term for which our friend ralph nader scolded me for using a little bit <laughs> i got he a said, note from him too the other yeah, day <laughs> he said use use say climate disruption don't say climate, climate chaos. I'm so old that I sometimes still call it the greenhouse effect without <laughs> thinking, you know. That's how long I've been doing this. Um, yeah, look, I mean, this has not been a great chapter in the history of journalism. They're getting much better. The Times and The Post and The Guardian provide now pretty good daily coverage of all of this, but they have a lot to make up for. Mark Hertzgard, our our old friend, is launching a major effort with the nation. Uh, they have a conference coming up uh, that's precisely aimed at trying to get local TV, the networks, others to do a much better job than they've been doing. The Sunday New York Times magazine devoted an entire issue to one article, something which it rarely, if ever, does, uh, entitled Losing Earth by Nathaniel Rich. And he writes, Today a global transformation is underway since 1981. Arctic sea ice has decreased by an average of 1.3% per year. Since 1989, the global mean temperature has increased by 1 degree Fahrenheit. By 2030, the number of people worldwide affected by floods is expected to triple. Between 2030 and 2050, climate change is expected to cause the deaths of roughly a quarter of a million people each year. By 2050, the Arctic Ocean is expected to be largely ice-free in the summer, and on and on. Uh, I'm interested in the 2030 year given here because that coincides with the IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, saying that 2030 is a kind of cutoff date. What does it mean? So the IPCC produced a report last autumn uh, a kind of follow-up to the Paris Climate Conference. And the question what, that they tackled was, if we wanted to meet the targets that we set at Paris to try and hold the temperature increase to somewhere between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius, what would it take? Now, remember, these are not ideal targets. <laughs> We've raised the temperature 1 degree so far, and that's melted half the Arctic. So uh, it's, it's, not like, it's not like we're aiming for a good solution. It, we're aiming for the best solution that's still within the realm of the possible. What they said was that if we hadn't begun to make fundamental transformation by 2030, and people were reading that as cutting carbon emissions by half by 2030, the chances of meeting those targets would go by the board. That became one of the real impetuses both for the... Um, the, the Green New Deal that the Sunrise Movement began putting together, which envisions 2030 as a very crucial year in this country, and for the spectacular work that began right at the same time um, by our Swedish colleague Greta Thunberg, who has been making the case in the uh, House of Commons in London. She said, look, 2030 is now, you know, 10 years and some months away and that's your deadline <laughs> get to it and 
you know, all the members of the House of Commons applauded her, but then I assume they went back to whatever they were doing before, you know, twiddling their thumbs about Brexit or whatever it is that occupies their minds most of the time. Ten years, I mean, you, you, you know enough, everybody listening to this enough knows enough about politics to know that if you actually wanted this, something to happen in 2030, you would have to be starting it right now. If you wanted it to happen, this is the last presidential election, the last congressional cycle, whatever that where we're going to have a chance to even begin to meet those kind of deadlines. Well, talk about the Green New Deal that was uh, introduced in Congress by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and in the Senate by um, Senator Ed Markey. Uh, What do you think of it? I think it's brilliant. I'm very proud of, first of all, the young people who are doing it. You know that we've been running, uh, Naomi Klein and I launched this fossil fuel divestment campaign that 350 really pushed hard. And part of that was on college campuses. And the people who formed the Sunrise Movement uh, cut their teeth, most of them, on that campus divestment movement across the country. When they got out of college, they formed this thing called the Sunrise Movement, and that's who came up with the Green New Deal concept. They took, they they were the ones, and this was another one of these key moments, like Greta Thunberg deciding she wasn't going to go to school. They went and did a little sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's office. You know, the kind of thing that happens in Washington regularly and doesn't attract that much attention. But they managed to get newly elected Bronx Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to come join them in this sit-in. Now, that is something that doesn't happen very often. Congress people sitting in in their boss's office, as it were. And that was the galvanizing moment that launched the Green New Deal and in some sense turned uh, AOC into the commanding and remarkable figure that she is. It's not that this legislation is going to pass tomorrow. It clearly isn't. It may never pass because it's big and bold. What it does do is describe for the first time uh, the kind of legislation at the kind of scale that would actually be required to deal with the scale of the problem that we now have. And, I mean, the irony of everybody who, all the kind of right-wingers reacting to it and say, oh, it's socialist, oh, it's too big, oh, it's, you know, this and that, is these are precisely the same people who kept us from taking small steps 30 years ago. I mean, I have to restrain myself once in a while from saying, oh, if only you'd listen to me then, because 30 years ago, there were lots of little things that one could have done. You know, 30 years ago, a modest price on carbon would have been enough to put this ocean liner on a different trajectory, you know, but the oil industry was having none of it back then. And now they're the same people saying, well, this is much too big, this thing you want to do now. You say that... uh falter your book is about being human what do you mean by that the book is partly about climate change and sort of telling the story of what's happened over the last 30 years and where we are now and it's partly about the next round of technological invention and hubris that feels to me the same way that climate change felt 30 years ago as very ominous things that we're not paying enough attention to particular, I talk about the rise of uh, uh, the deeper forms of artificial intelligence and about human genetic engineering. As you know, this is right about at its breakout point now. So pay the attention to this that we didn't pay to climate change 30 years ago and note the linkage between the two things. For me, there's a long chapter in this book about Ayn Rand and the rise of a kind of hyper-libertarianism. The one thing that unites the Silicon Valley uh, tycoons, the, um, you know, Elon Musk's and Peter Thiel's and uh, uh, others of that world uh, that unites them with the Koch brothers and uh, Donald Trump and so on is not, they don't have any shared style and their social politics are very different and so on, but they have the same love for uh, libertarianism. Ayn Rand is a goddess in both communities. Um, they don't want anyone ever telling them what to do. They don't value society and they don't value human solidarity. Uh, they value a kind of extreme freedom to do whatever you want, and 
the result is already a world that's two degrees hotter than it used to be, and soon will be a world peopled with um, uh, inventions that are not our friends. You mentioned the current occupant of the Oval Office, a longtime climate denier who called it uh, a hoax, calls it a hoax, attributing it to some Chinese machinations. But I was very curious when he made that announcement in the Rose Garden in front of the White House, announcing that the U.S. would pull out of the Paris Accord. It wasn't even a treaty. It was kind of a loose understanding among nations. Nothing. And you know, you know why it wasn't a treaty? The rest of the world decided 10 or 12 years ago that there was no way that the U.S. Senate would ever muster 66 votes to pass any kind of climate treaty. So there was no way to negotiate one. Instead, they'd have to do this jury-rigged series of pledges and promises. Our political dysfunction was the reason even that Paris was such a weak and watered-down affair. What I found disturbing at that uh, press conference was that the assembled audience of administration officials and presumably corporate executives burst into applause. I mean, I was just thinking, is there no shame? This was their project. The only good thing that came out of that was that Trump's speechwriter had said, had him say, I was elected to be president of Pittsburgh, not of Paris. And three hours later, the mayor of Pittsburgh said, you don't speak for us. We're we're announcing today that we're going to be a 100% renewable energy city within 20 years. So at least that small rhetorical flourish backfired on them. And indeed, there's been an awful lot of work at the local level. Uh, I mean, you saw just this week that the city of Denver uh, joined many others now in divesting its public holdings, its pension funds. Over 40 cities, From fossil fuel. Mm-hmm. 40 cities, including London, New York... Paris, the great financial capitals of the world. <laughs> when Naomi and I started this divestment, started talking about this divestment stuff, we did not, I do not think, I mean, I speak for myself, Naomi is more sagacious than I am in every way, but uh, I didn't envision that it would put quite the hurt on the industry that it's managed to. We're now at trillion dollars worth of endowments and portfolios that have divested in part or in whole. Shell said last year that divestment had become a material risk to its business. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, there was a big story in Politico about coal executives down at uh, the big annual fossil fuel conference in Houston, and they were saying quite bluntly, they simply could not raise capital anymore. Too many funds had divested from fossil fuel. So uh, it's been very good to watch this play out around the world, and there's a lot more play in it. Uh, I, you know, just uh, just today uh, or yesterday, uh, they um, launched a, a big attempt to get Harvard University to divest its $40 billion endowment, biggest endowment at any university in the world from fossil fuel. And Gina McCarthy, the former head of the EPA, and now a professor at Harvard, just stood up to the president and said, get on with it. This is obviously the future. Go forward, not backward. It's been a wonderful campaign, and we're incredibly grateful to really millions of people now around the world who did the work of forcing pension funds, colleges, churches. I mean, this has been a huge effort. Well, and the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, in right after that big demo in New York. That was a key moment, you know, uh, the moment when the heirs to the first oil fortune said, no more for us. This is, A, an immoral way to be trying to make money, and B, it's not even a smart way to be trying to make money anymore because oil stocks are doing badly. And people who divested five years ago when we first asked them to have made out like bandits because fossil fuel has underperformed every other part of the market because they have a truly serious challenge. I mean, their technology is under siege. The engineers have dropped the cost of a solar panel 90% in the last decade. The easiest way to produce electrons around the world, the cheapest way now, is with sun and wind. The batteries to store that power are getting cheaper with each passing month. There's not a long-term future for the fossil fuel industry. They just want to make sure they keep their business model going for another couple of decades even at the cost of breaking the planet, which clearly is the cost. I mean, 
a way to think about it is this. 50 years from now, we're definitely going to run this earth on sun and wind because they're free. Okay. The question is, can we make that transition fast enough so that the world we run on sun and wind is not an entirely broken world? On current trajectories, we'll have some a lot of solar panels and wind turbines that'll basically be powering the pumps by which we're trying to remove the seawater from all the coastal cities of the planet. You're listening to Bill McKibben on Planet in Peril. You can order copies of this program and McKibben's book, Falter, by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. You travel around the country a lot. You give speeches all over the place. I do to a lesser extent. I get this question at every, almost every single meeting. People say, don't these guys, and they're mostly guys, have children and grandchildren? They know what's <laughs> happening. How could they put their own families at risk? So, so A... How do you answer that a, question? A, one of the ways to answer it is they're drunk on Ayn Rand. I mean, I think that the syllogism for a long time in the minds of a lot of sort of libertarian luminaries was markets solve all problems, markets aren't solving climate change, Therefore, climate change is not a problem. Now, that's not a very good logical syllogism, but it's emotionally comforting, you know, if, if, if that's the kind of person you are. The question I get all the time is, why, doesn't, why didn't Exxon, since it knew all this, why didn't it just decide to own the solar energy business? Why didn't it just switch and go over and they had the cash flow to, you know, build out, the, you know, it would have been the right solution. The answer is, and this is interesting in all kinds of ways, the answer is you can make a lot of money from solar energy. I mean, people are going to get rich putting up solar panels and wind turbines, but you're not going to make Exxon kind of money. And the reason is that once you've put the panel up, the sun delivers the energy for free. From Exxon's point of view, that's the stupidest possible business model. It'd be like if you had a furnace in your basement that somehow just, you know, created oil out of thin air, you know. Uh, Exxon's made its fortune by having you write a check to it every month for a century, you know. They don't want free. So that's why they've used every power at their resource. The utilities have used every power at their resource to try and beat back beat back in every way renewable energy it's now getting so cheap that that's impossible so they're playing now for just stringing out the time that it will take as long as they possibly can some have suggested that in capitalism's dna of accumulation and more and more wealth and more and more uh, of a particular kind of growth that it's incapable of turning this ship around. Certainly this kind of unregulated capitalism that gets to do whatever it wants, I mean, it's proven that it's, I mean, it's now run the ship aground. I mean, uh, uh, and and so the the good news is, if there, if you, one, in, in my business, one looks hard for small pieces of good news, right? So, but let's, let's imagine that we really do take up this, this, charge as physics demands we do of quickly converting us to sun and wind it's within our technological ability now and we could i mean it's cheaper than the alternatives so as we do that one of the side benefits is that we begin the job of rebalancing some of the power and wealth that's been so unequally distributed if you think about it a fair amount of the imbalance of power in our world comes from the fact that certain people sit atop the small deposits of coal and oil and gas that are our greatest economic treasures. The Koch brothers are the Koch brothers not because they have some 
deep insight into the whole world that everyone's you know in awe of it's because they're our biggest oil and gas barons and they have enough money to have purchased a political party i mean we pay attention pay fealty to the saudi royal family not because they have some like insight into governance that we admire i mean they behead teenagers this week you know for the crime of uh, asking for democracy we pay fealty to them because they sit on top of a big oil well um um the world that comes next will hopefully be somewhat less imbalanced in that way because we'll be producing one of our most important commodities energy much closer to home no one will be sending a check off to the Koch brothers every month Eco-activists sometimes risk their lives, get uh, murdered. There was a case in uh, Brazil, uh, in Honduras, Berta Caceres uh, was uh, murdered. Uh, she said, while we have capitalism, this planet will not be saved. While we, while we do the kind of thing that we're doing now, I think that's completely true. Now, I mean, so then this begs the definition a little bit of what capitalism is i mean is when bernie points to denmark as his you know ideal of where we need to go um i mean it's capitalist in the sense that you know there are markets and you hand people money and they give you things back and so on and so forth there are corporations and so on but it's not capitalist like we're used to because the government is in effective control of those corporations of that world and that's why you know they have lot they get lots of nice things you know <laughs> they don't just hand it all over to seven rich i mean the the cartoonish levels of inequality are at this point are almost as almost as unnerving as the cartoonish levels of environmental disruption i mean one of the most important facts on earth is is that the ocean is 30% more acidic than it was 40 years ago. Another of the most important facts on Earth is that eight people control more wealth than the bottom three and a half billion people on the planet. I mean, those are equally absurd and dangerous, and they're connected. How do you talk to, let's say I work on an oil rig or an or in a coal mine, and my livelihood depends on that job. And you know, I've got aging parents. Uh, they're you know they're going to need assisted living soon. I haven't paid for my kids' tuition to college because it's so expensive. Um, I've got a mortgage to pay. How do we so win? This is precisely the conversation that the Green New Deal wants to have. In fact, uh, <laughs> last week, uh, this Kentucky congressman, in an effort to you know be a jerk said you know that alexandria ocasio cortez should come down to my district and talk to some coal miners and then she'd find out what's for and immediately aoc said yes tell me where I, I, you know i'm on my way you tell me when I'm, at which point the guy said ah, you know didn't really mean it because he knows that what she would say would be compelling she would say the green new deal is about a job guarantee at a good wage for anyone who wants to work in this transition for clean energy it's about a college education you know provided for everyone just the way that they do in every other industrialized country it's about medical care so you don't have to be down getting black lung disease in order to provide medical care for your family you know uh, these are not things that are unpopular these are precisely the things that coal miners in Kentucky I mean it's not like anyone physically loves the actual act of mining coal you know that's not I mean, my mother's family is all from West Virginia. I know that world a little bit. That's not what people, I mean, it's that that's been the only good jobs down there. And remember, every piece of legislation about climate or energy that the Democrats have put forward for decades now has had money for, included for uh, lots of trend, just transition, job training, relocate, you know, all the things that would be required. The Republicans have refused to pass any of them because it was much more politically convenient to hold those people hostage, to do what Donald Trump did with them. At this point, the coal industry is so fully automated everything that it does that there aren't many coal miners left anyway. I mean, someone did a story 
six months ago, pointing out that there are now more people who work in Arby's roast beef sandwich shops in America than mine coal. Okay, Spain just essentially bought out all its coal miners. It said, you can retire now. Here's your pay going forward because that was cheaper than trying to cope with the the consequences of keeping open coal mines you know into the future um so it's it's not that we can't do this it's that we're not doing it because people who own coal mines not coal miners people who own coal mines have undue political influence what can we learn from indigenous native americans so Indigenous people have been at the absolute heart of organizing around climate now. My first foray into this in a lot of ways was helping organize the resistance to the Keystone Pipeline. And the reason that I first got involved in it was because a couple of people who became dear friends, uh, indigenous organizers from up in Alberta, started showing me what was going on up there. A woman named Melina Lubicon Massimo, Clayton Thomas Muller, others. Um, um, I mean, this is the biggest scar literally on the face of the earth. I mean, it's Mordor up there. You know, it couldn't be more horrible. And, and of course, its climate consequences couldn't be more horrible. If you dug up all the tar sands in Canada that are economically available um, um, and burned them, that one deposit would raise the carbon concentration in the atmosphere from its current 400 parts per million, 410, already too high. It would raise it to about 540 parts per million. That's why Jim Hansen said, keep doing this and it's game over for the climate. And so the indigenous people who started that fight have continued that fight and still fighting Keystone and you saw the Dakota Access fight. But Everywhere around the world, the same thing, you know. They're the people who are fighting hard to keep Justin Trudeau from building this ridiculous pipeline uh, to British Columbia. They're the people who are at the forefront of the fight in Australia to stop the biggest coal mine in the world that the Adani Corporation wants to build in Queensland. That's the people in the South Pacific that are, uh, you know, rallying uh, public opinion from around the world. On and on and on and on. There's two th- two things, two parts of this that I think are really important. One is, in just purely strategic terms, around the world, when we pushed indigenous people off their land and onto places that we thought had in the 19th century had no value, you know, it turns out that now they're living either atop big piles of coal and gas and oil or astride the transportation corridors you'd need to get those things to market. So they've they they they've been able to play a really significant role there. More importantly, there's something powerful about the fact that the oldest wisdom traditions on the planet and the newest wisdom traditions on the planet are meshing. The view from the sweat lodge and the view from the satellite and the supercomputer are in pretty strong accord. And what they're saying is that the worldview of all the rest of us, the kind of worldview that defined modernity about endless growth and things, isn't possible, isn't smart, isn't good, isn't wise. So that's a powerful place to be. And it's why I try to take as many of my cues as possible from great organizers, Honor the Earth, Indigenous Environmental Network. uh, Idle No More in Canada. Idle No More, uh, on and on. Well, this, the resistance at Standing Rock actually injected a couple of terms into the lexicon that have really caught on. One is the idea of water protectors, mm-hmm. and the other is stewardship of the land. Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting is those also have great connections to another sort of band of people that have become really important, which are kind of faith-based environmental organizers. There was a time not that long ago when there was no religious environmental movement, but now there very much is, and stewardship has obviously been a key part of that. Really, one of the greatest documents of this millennium was Francis's uh, uh, encyclical on climate change, Laudato Si. Pope which, Francis. Yes, which is a remarkable critique of modernity, as radical as anything anyone in this country has you know, written and entirely worth 
one's time to spend a day with. And so many people now have taken up that call. We work constantly with groups of nuns or of people from every religious tradition who are stepping up, and boy, they're good organizers. How does one overcome this sense of despair, which is somewhat pervasive around uh, issues like extinction? I mean, it's... So despair is not a, you know, it's a perfectly legitimate emotion to have. (laughs) And sometimes I have it. And in my experience, the only way to overcome it is through action. Um, One feels a lot less wretched about the whole thing when one is in actions because we don't know how the story is going to end or rather we know that the story has a better chance of ending at least halfway decently if we really engage hard now we're obviously not going to stop global warming it is too late for that it's not too late or so the best science tells us to keep it from getting worse than it has to get We're on a track now if we don't really make some big changes for a three and a half degree, four degree centigrade rise in temperature at seven or eight degrees Fahrenheit. If we do that, then we cannot have civilizations like anything like the ones we're used to having. But we don't have to go there. If we do everything right at this point, then we could hit that 1.5 or two degree Celsius target. That will be a difficult world. It's already a difficult world. Climate change is already making life very, very hard for lots of people, especially the people who did the least to cause it. That's the iron rule of climate change. If we go much higher than that, then difficult becomes impossible. Um, That's why it's so good. I think that's the recognition in a way that the youngest parts of the climate movement have really understood. Because look... You and I are going to be dead before the absolute worst of this kicks in. But if you're 12 right now or 14 or 18 or something, it's going to be right at the moment when you should be in the prime of your life that all you're going to get to do is kind of try and respond to the sets of emergencies that become ever more common. They understand at some gut level the unfairness of it. And boy, it's good to see them calling people out on it. John Nichols, a novelist who wrote The Milagro Beanfield War and lives in Taos, New Mexico, he said, despair is an indulgent and despicable bourgeois affectation. <laughs> you must not allow it, he says. Well, I, I allow it sometimes in my own mind, but then I am, um, I, I think what I sometimes despair of is like, uh, there'll be days when I think we're just not going to get this done because it's a time test and we're not moving fast enough. But then I think to myself, even if that's true, at least today I can cause some trouble for the oil companies. And that's sometimes, you know, uh, reward enough for psychic reward enough for the day. Another favorite quote of mine is um, Antonio Gramsci's pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, mm-hmm. in that you look at the situation objectively and it's dire but you have the optimism to overcome it. Climate change tests that, okay? Because it's not like other political questions that we face. Every other political question that we face, time is sort of on our side uh, because eventually we're going to get it right. I mean, what did Dr. King always say, quoting from the Massachusetts abolitionist Theodore Parker. He would always say at the end of every speech, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, which I think translates to, this may take a while, but we're going to win. That's a comforting thought, and the civil rights movement then and now needed comforting thoughts because it takes a lot of bravery to stand up to white supremacy and so on. The arc of the physical universe, by contrast, in this case, appears to be short and to bend toward heat, you know. And if we don't solve it soon, we don't solve it. There's not a plan for refreezing the Arctic once it melts. That's the place that makes it different, you know. Uh, I think it was 
Norman Thomas, maybe, who said, there are no lost causes, only causes not yet won, you know, which is the a wonderful and quite American way to think about, you know, things. Um, in the case of climate change, not so true. And that's the hard part. That's why in a rational world, we would be devoting every resource we have to doing everything we can do in the short amount of time we still have left to make a palpable difference. Past a certain point, we won't be able to. And we're obviously reaching that point to some degree. So for instance, by producing more carbon, we've raised the temperature of the earth. And now that raised temperature is melting the permafrost up north, which is releasing lots of methane and nitrogen oxides into the atmosphere. And they are potent greenhouse gases. We have no way we can still turn the carbon thermostat down by driving electric cars, by putting up solar panels, by walking where we're going, by eating lower on the food chain, by doing all the things that we should do. But we have no way of controlling the you know, methane and nitrogen oxide uh, thermostats. They're just going to happen if we keep raising the temperature. That's the stuff that, well, my hair is quite gray now, and that's why. Well, it seems to me that change is not going to come from the top. It's going to come from below, from people's movements, Absolutely. from blockades and sit-ins and um, mass demonstrations, keeping keeping the heat on. Absolutely. So here's what people need to be thinking about this year. Uh, uh, Greta Thunberg, Haven Coleman, uh, other leaders of the school strikes have said pointedly, that it's time for adults to back them up, and they're absolutely right. Stay tuned at 350 or many other places, because I think you'll see coming up in the autumn, uh, adult strikes. Uh, you know, we need millions of people walking off the job, if only for a day, uh, to make the point, and it's the profound point, that business as usual is not an option. We have to disrupt business as usual because literally, David, it's business as usual that's doing us in. It's the fact that we just get up every day and keep doing more or less the same things we did the day before, even as this enormous crisis unfolds. That's the problem. And I think you're right. You know, we have to create enough pressure that the system begins to respond. It's not going to be easy because... When the system finally feels enough pressure to begin to respond, it'll try to do so in the most minimal of ways. The oil companies will propose a modest carbon tax, and they'll ask in return to be removed from any liability for what they've done in the past and an end to EPA regulation and things. And it'll be hard not to jump at that deal because there's been never anything on offer ever before, you know. But if we do... We'll take the pressure off and the time will pass. It's going to be very difficult. For the moment, though, our job is to keep ratcheting up that pressure. You say you're less grim now than in your younger days. And resistance to these dangers is at least possible. So less grim in certain ways. Um, you know, truthfully, I would not have predicted in 1989 that we would do nothing. I would not have predicted when I was 27 that the fossil fuel industry would lie for 30 years in an effort to prevent. I mean, I was, as it turns out, naive. Um, but I'm more optimistic in that I've watched and helped with the development of movements and in the process come to understand nonviolent movement building as a kind of technology, sort of a technology like solar panels that comes out of the 20th century and that offers us enormous promise in the 21st. Uh, you know, uh, Gandhi and King and the suffragettes and others really figured out a new way of moving the world, a way for the small but many to stand up to the mighty and the few. And that's precisely the situation we're in. But the big question, as you pose in the book, is can we act fast enough? The urgency of the moment. So I don't know. Uh, we're going to find out. We're going to find out not in 100 years. We'll know in 10 or 15 years if we acted fast enough. And probably we'll know, have a pretty good sense before that, whether we're rising to the occasion. Um, I do know at this point that we're going to put up a fight. Ten years ago, I didn't know even that. And I think it's the reason more than anything else that I wanted to 
do some more organizing and try to set up a climb, help build the climate movement. Because um, I was worried that we would just walk off this cliff without even really knowing we were doing it. And that seemed, at the very least, undignified. I think we're a special species. I actually think we're in the process of finding out whether the big brain was a good adaptation or not. It clearly can get us in a lot of trouble. I think the answer to whether it can get us out of that trouble or not is how big are the hearts that that brain is connected to. On those rare days you're at home in Vermont, uh, what do you do for serenity? I get out into the woods around me. Um, I live in the woods because that's, for me, the place where uh, the world comes together best. That was Bill McKibben on Planet in Peril. I talked with him in Boulder, Colorado on April 24th, 2019. Bill McKibben, a renowned eco-activist, is the winner of the Gandhi Prize and the Right Livelihood Award. He's co-founder of 350.org and author of the book Falter. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. Now in its 33rd year, we are independent and part of the nonprofit organization Rise Up. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. Every week we feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media. We have done a series of programs on the climate crisis with Dar Jamel, Winona LaDuc, David Suzuki, Naomi Klein, Noam Chomsky, and Lester Brown. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Bill McKibben on Planet in Peril, and his book, Falter, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to KGNU. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. listening to CGSW 90.9 FM. to 